Welcome everybody to Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales. And because one of you made contact with me and said, is there anything sexual that is particularly grizzly? Which got me looking, frankly, in all of the worst areas. So thank you very much for that. Quite enjoyed it. Sexual complications, sexual diseases, I thought, and there's some awful things that you can suffer messing around with other members of the opposite or the same sex. Now, there's a thing called human papillomavirus infection. And it's one of those sexually transmitted things for men and women. And it's so common that pretty much every sexually active person on earth will get this at some point. Even if you've only got or had one or two partners, it's an infection that causes warts in various parts of the body, genital warts, yeah, depending on the strain, and it's past due rubbing skin up against somebody else. And there's a hundred different types of what's called HPV-40, and you can get these warts. I can touch fake wood and say, to my knowledge, I've never had one of these things yet, you can get them on your genitals or all over your doobries, in your mouth or down your throat, which must be an awful place to have a what. Most people get it through oral sex. And because it's a skin-to-skin infection, you don't need to have full sex to catch it. And in some cases, a mother who has HPV can infect her own baby while she's delivering it. Welcome to the world, genital warts. Now, the warts tend to go away on their own without any signs, without any symptoms, but the problem is the virus is still in your body, which means you're passing this on to every sexual partner that you have. And if it doesn't go away on its own... It can cause cervical cancer. It can cause cancer of the genitals, the penis and the vagina, uh, cancer of the head, neck and throat. So next time you're with somebody, think long and perhaps not so hard about it. The only way to prevent it, condoms and limiting the number of people you sleep with. So we know you're probably not going to do that. And the treatment depends on what stage these things are at. As I say, there's no cure for the virus at all. And the treatment that you can get will remove the wart, but you will still have the strain. The other thing that's downright nasty is a thing called genital herpes. Now, we've all got herpes of a sort. People that get cold sores. That's a herpes virus. And genital herpes means serious pain down there. Most people who have it don't even know they have it because there's no symptoms, or if there are symptoms at all, they're so mild you're probably not going to notice them. And it's passed from one person to another through sex. This will happen even if the person with the virus doesn't have any symptoms, no signs of infection, once that virus enters 
and it comes through your skin. It travels along the pathways of your nerves and it'll stay in there forever. And from time to time, it might become active and that's when you will feel severe pain. At this point, it'll, you'll have an outbreak of symptoms. It still might be undetected, which means you're just dishing it out to anybody that you have any sex with. Wearing a condom will not protect your partner. The virus is on your skin all over, not just down there. The symptoms, small blisters that break open. Now, you don't want a blister down there, but blisters, that's worse. They break open and they produce horrible, raw, painful sores. They heal over in a few weeks and then you get like a flu-type symptoms, fever, swollen lymph nodes, you're itchy and tingly around your vitals, so you're scratching them all the time, or your buttocks, your thighs, or your bum. Your blisters then pop and leave sores that ooze and bleed, and people notice that kind of thing, and if you're taking your trousers off with somebody new, they're not going to like the picture. And you also suffer headaches. And pain when you pass water, especially if women are passing water over the sores, which they do. No cure for it. Symptoms can be lessened with treatment. To try and prevent it, and as I say, try, use condoms when having sex. Don't kiss when your partner's got cold sores. Avoid oral sex while either partner has oral or genital sores. Don't have genital or anal contact when sores are present and wash your hands after touching any infected areas. None of that is sexy. It's just nasty. It's grisly, which is why it's on this. Gonorrhea in the throat. Oh, my goodness. Why did you suggest I did this? Because this is grisly. It's really common among young people, 15 to 24 especially. It's a transmitted bacterial infection, and if it's not treated, you could become infertile. It infects men and women, causing infections in the genitals, rectum, and throat. You could catch gonorrhea by having any kind of sex, vaginal, anal, oral, with somebody who has gonorrhea. A pregnant woman with gonorrhea will give the infection to her unborn child. And if you're sexually active and you're gay, bisexual, or have sex with men, doctors actually suggest you should be tested for gonorrhea every year. If you're a sexually active woman or a lesbian younger than 25, or you're just a chancer who has sex with a lot of different people, particularly if you have oral sex, you should be tested every single year. This is actually created by a kind of bacteria. And even though it's spread through sex, a man doesn't have to ejaculate to pass it on. Any kind of contact, anything, putting it in for a second is enough. Oral sex, just for a second, is enough. Blowjob, just for a second. You can get it from touching an area with your finger. And if you come into contact with any of your, your private areas, then you're in trouble. Now, a lot of these germs can't live for more than a few seconds outside the body. So you actually can catch gonorrhea touching toilet seats or clothes. 
if they've just been used by someone who has gonorrhea. What can you expect? A horrible hot burning sensation when you're weeing, white or green discharges from the end of the penis, painful or swollen testicles, increased vaginal discharges, bleeding in between periods, anal itching, painful bowel movements, awful sore throats. Now, it can be cured. Although medication might stop the infection, it will not do any permanent damage that the disease causes. And you should wait for some time after finishing all medications before you even think about touching anybody else. If you don't treat it, you can get pelvic inflammatory disease, ectopic pregnancies, scar tissues that block the fallopian tubes and make you infertile, and untreated, it increases your chances of contacting HIV and AIDS. You've got to use condoms, have your sexual partners tested once in a while, don't have sex with anybody with the symptoms, and get regular screenings. Oh, I'm going to have to have a lie down, but not that kind of lie down after this. Syphilis is the next one. Highly contagious disease spread by oral and anal and ordinary sex. Occasionally even prolonged kissing or close bodily contact. It's spread from sores. The vast majority are undetected and the infected person is often unaware of it until they pass it on to their partner. Pregnant women again spread it to their baby. It's called congenital syphilis and it can cause abnormalities. It can even kill the child. It's caused by bacteria and it has three stages. The early stage, sores, small painless ulcers in or around the genitals in the mouth. Second stage might last up to three months often getting a rosy Cooper penny rash, palms of the hands, soles of the feet, in the mouth, fever, bit of weight loss. Then the virus lies dormant a while, and if you're not treated, you can have heart, brain and nerves that pain, resulting in paralysis, blindness, dementia, deafness, impotence, and you can die with it. The symptoms are sore mouths, vagina, anus, swollen glands, hair loss, weight loss, skin rash. And the only way you can prevent it is to avoid any contact with any person who's infected. But how do you know? Use condoms every time, avoid having multiple partners. It's a serious, serious, nasty business. And we know you're not going to stop having sex. Try and make it a habit of using a condom. Try not to put it about with just everybody. And if you suspect there's anything that maybe any of the things I've mentioned, don't just walk to the doctor. Run to the doctor, lob it out and let them have a look. Simples. Now that's basically a bit of grisly because you asked for it. And it's also a warning for you to watch out and take care. Because I do care about you guys, want you to stay safe. However, let me tell you some awful grisly stories that are sexually related, if that's the thing. That's the area of grisly you want me to walk down. Now, the slicing off of a man's testicles and penis would make most men squirm, even just hearing about it. 
And yet women and other men have been doing this to victims since the beginning of time. We all heard of Lorena Bobbitt emasculating her husband and tossing the severed member out of the truck or the rape victim biting off the attacker's penis. And there's a lot of nasty, nasty stories. Rape, I think, is a disgusting and disgraceful crime. And a depraved rapist picked up a 15-year-old girl who was hitchhiking in California. After raping her, he cut off her forearms with a hatchet and threw her over a cliff and left her to die in the desert. Miraculously, the 30-foot fall didn't kill the brave girl who managed, without arms, to climb up the cliff where a passing motorist took her naked and almost dead body to the hospital. Six months later, the person responsible, a man called Lawrence Singleton, was arrested and on trial. In spite of the awful crime and the threat to kill the maimed girl, Singleton only got a 14-year sentence. That was the maximum sentence permitted at the time. Horrific, sick kind of judgment. He was out of prison after only eight years. He tried to move into various neighbourhoods and they all forced him out. And he had to spend a year of his parole living on the grounds of San Quentin Prison in a trailer. He moved to Florida where he was convicted of killing a prostitute who he stabbed in the face and chest. He was given a death sentence, but he died while he was on death row. We should never let these creatures out. Let me tell you about Armin Muse. He was a computer tech. And uh, he advertised on a website called The Cannibal Cafe for a victim so that he could eat them. And Bern Brands from Berlin said, Oh, eat me, eat me. You, you can't believe that they would. But he did. Stepped forward. So Brands wanted Muse to bite off his penis. And he tried and he tried and he tried, biting as hard as he could, but he wasn't able to do it. So he had to get a knife and amputate it with that. Brands then tried to eat some of his own penis, but found it too chewy. So he cooked the penis in a pan with fat, but he burnt it and ended up feeding it to his dog. Muse did kill Brands and then eat an awful lot of his flesh and he made videos of the whole thing. The police authorities in Germany have not released it, nor will they ever. While Brands was weakened from blood loss, Muse gave him alcohol and sedatives and then finished him off, stabbing him half a dozen times in the throat, hung him up on a meat hook and used him like a buffet for the next few months. He was convicted of manslaughter because Brands wanted to die and he was sentenced to only eight years. Muse was retried, convicted of murder, and then given life. And a film was made of it, simply called Cannibal. Not much fun. Now, JFK, John F. Kennedy, he was obviously serving president, and he was shot 
while a bystander filmed the entire thing. Millions of people have seen the film of this amazing and talented politician. And they see his head explode. And you see the scene of his beautiful wife, Jackie Kennedy, crawling under the trunk lid to try and scrape up parts of her husband's skull and brains. And that's real life, and how creepy is that? Now, decapitation. I mention this because over the last 20 years, there's been a massive increase of scum on the internet decapitating people. Islamic terrorists posting as if they're something incredible and amazing when it just makes them look like the slime that they are. Horrible scenes of innocent people and we don't want to see any more. If that's the kind of fun that you want in any world you're trying to create, the rest of humanity want no part of it. Then, an unemployed publicist, you know, like PA-type guy, called Raul Barrera. He beat his beautiful blonde girlfriend to death when she tried to break up from him. Sarah Coit was only 23. He beat her to the floor, stabbed her over 30 times, disemboweled her, slashed her throat. She's still breathing. And then stuck a knife into her skull. During the rampage on her, he used five different knives before he cleaned up and left the scene. So instead of calling the police or an ambulance, Raoul called his family and whinged on until his father talked Raoul into giving up. He got a sentence of 25 years to life. Again, he should never be out of prison. Josef Mengele. You know, last week we did grisly things from World War Two. Well, this excuse for a doctor, a Nazi death camp doctor, he performed horrific experiments on helpless prisoners that couldn't fight them off. Vivisection, cutting up people with no anaesthetic while they're still alive, injecting odd drugs and chemicals into people just to see what would happen trying to see how long it took prisoners to freeze to death, amputating limbs without anaesthetic, just to see how well the victim could do without them. He would amputate limbs and reattach them on the opposite side of the body. He sewed t normal twins together to try and create a Siamese twin. He injected chemicals into the eyes of prisoners to see if he could change their eye colour. He intentionally injected healthy people with all kinds of deadly diseases. Mengele escaped to South America after the war, finally dying from drowning while swimming and having a stroke in 1979. Now, there were some horrible murders in the 1930s in Cleveland. Twelve murders from 1935 to 1938 by the same murderer. The victim would be decapitated and then cut into pieces. Male victims were castrated too. Elliot Ness, the real one from The Untouchables, had a lot of pressure put on him to make sure that he caught the murderer. 
but these murders were never solved. It's believed that a couple of dozen of these murders happened in and around Pennsylvania, the same maniac doing them. Loads of books have been written about them, gruesome killings of hobos, tramps, travellers and poor people. Not funny. You can see photographs of the victims if you go online. Now, I mentioned the Black Dahlia before. It's a lady called Elizabeth Short. She lived in Los Angeles. And there's been songs about her, video games, an album by a death metal band, all kinds of books. And this is another one of those cases that's just never been solved. The body of poor Elizabeth was found by a woman with a three-year-old daughter in a vacant lot, naked, dismembered, and her body cut in half at the waist with a large slice from each corner of her mouth, creating a huge, ugly smile effect. The body had been washed and posed on her back with her hands over her head, her legs spread, the two halves of her torso a foot apart. Now, five people confessed to committing the crime. Numerous people, including a few famous ones, have been suggested as being the killer. But to this day, nobody knows who did that. And if we're talking about this kind of sexy crime, it isn't sexy, it's just evil. You've got to mention probably the worst perpetrator of this type of evil, Jeffrey Dahmer. He was ruled to be sane enough to stand trail. They said he just had a borderline personality disorder. The rape and murder of 17 men and boys, many of which he had sex with after they had died, and then he ate them. And if that wasn't enough, he tried to turn them into sex zombies by drilling holes in their heads and pouring, pouring in all kinds of different liquids while they were still alive. He cut up a lot of the victims, slicing flesh off the bones, smashing the bones to make the disposal easy. He kept some of the body parts in his fridge for sexual purposes at his leisure. He used a boiled skull as a masturbation aid. Now, Dahmer had already killed a man in Ohio years before the murders, but he didn't face trial until he was caught and the case became an international sensation. He was also convicted during his killing spree of drugging and sexually assaulting a 13-year-old lad that he lured to his apartment, and he only got five years probation. You know, people get 10 years for selling prescription drugs. Why five years for that? He's serving life in prison for his crimes. Well, he was until someone beat him to death in 1994. And pretty much everybody was pretty pleased about that. So let's have perhaps a more conventional grizzly tale going to tell you about the Bogner Banjaks. Have the gypsies ever called at your house asking if you'd buy some lucky heather? Yes, well, mine too, and quite often I've politely declined. I may well have been wise to do so in light of what happened to Roy and Jeanette Micklewhite, 
back in 1922. Roy had been working in London on the construction of a building for the new London Broadcasting Station that would later be known as the BBC. The job was done and with a big fat paycheck and a good bonus, he returned home to his wife in Bognor. He needed the money too. His wife was pregnant and he wasn't sure whether his contract as a builder was to be taken up. He decided that what money he had made must be put away and not spent. When he heard a rapping on the door that evening, he hoped it might be an offer of work. Instead, he found a wasp-faced gypsy lass wearing rags and clutching a handful of lucky heather. Ray unceremoniously slammed the door on her, catching her finger and cutting it badly. She hammered on the side window, yelling, "'You'll know that I've been, for I've banjanxed you both!' Now, Roy was genuinely sorry that he'd caught the girl's hand, but consoled himself that she should get a proper job, coming uninvited to people's homes, was just asking for trouble. But what was banjaxing? because he'd just been banjaxed. Later that night, his wife began suffering terrible stomach pains, and he rushed her to the hospital. There, they couldn't understand what was going wrong. When Jeanette calmed herself, she was returned home, and it was there an amazing series of events took place. As his wife lay fast asleep in bed, Roy witnessed something writhing beneath the light sheet. On pulling back the covers, out slithered a snake. He fell back in terror as it slid past him and out the door, then once again from his wife's bed, as if they were coming from her womb. Thousands of ants began crawling down the bedspread. He looked at his wife's face and she looked so peacefully asleep. Yet now the bed was alive with maggots, wriggling and twisting in front of his face. He screamed and still his wife didn't awake. He clawed at the bed to try and remove these disgusting creatures when something much bigger began to appear. Roy was in such turmoil that he didn't know what it was and he picked up a metal shovel that he had used for putting coal into the open fire. He drew back the sheet and was in the act of bringing the shovel down hard when he saw... It was a baby. He only just managed to stop splitting the child's skull. His wife had given birth in her sleep. The baby was cared for by a midwife who lived only a few doors away, and all was well again in the Micklewhite household. However, whenever the gypsies come knocking now, he always buys some lucky heather just in case. Roy Micklewhite died in the middle 1950s and he swore to his dying day that he had seen all of the horrors that he spoke about all those years before. And his daughter, the child that was born, Mary, had a birthmark on her neck, the shape of a snake. So let us on to a seafaring tale. In 1580, taking you way back, thousands gathered at Plymouth to welcome home one of Britain's great heroes, Sir Francis Drake, who was still considered by many as little more than a pirate. The Spanish certainly wanted him put on trial for piracy, 
as he'd been preying on their ships, plundering them of treasure for his queen. Drake had proved himself to be a great captain, taking his three ships around the world by the way of Cape Horn and the Cape of Good Hope. His expedition had only been marred by an attempted mutiny when they were becalmed north of the Magellan Straits at Port Julian. Now Francis Drake refused to be namby-pamby, and he executed his friend Thomas Doughty, one of the mutiny's leaders. Now Doughty's co-conspirators were placed in chains and returned to England in disgrace. The grand reception given to Drake led to most people missing the sad sight of seven broken men being dragged off the ship, bundled into a hay cart and driven away towards prison. Barely a mile from Plymouth, one of the more cunning mutineers buried himself in the hay, wriggling right down to the bottom and ordering his friends to sit on him. The gods thought he'd escaped and, chaining the others up, sent out search parties. But at night, Charles Murray from Lincolnshire crept out of the straw and ran off into the night. For almost eight weeks he scavenged a living from the bleak hills of Dartmoor, setting up camp on Riders Hill. He ate a diet of birds, hedgehogs and the rats that lived in huge colonies there in those dark days. And he was building up to returning home to Lincoln. Murray was an unpleasant man. With a bald head and ebony eyes, he hated women, having once been arrested for tearing a woman's dress hours before he'd set off on his travels with Drake, and as he made his way across the country towards home, he stole to survive. On the outskirts of Nottingham, a woman was raped and murdered. A man answering Murray's description was seen. Before entering Lincoln, he visited an old drinking pal, Ernest Pottle, who had a cottage near Doddington Hall, as he worked on the land nearby. Pottle warned Murray that there was a warrant out for his arrest and he'd have to lie low. This angered the surly mutineer who swore, I'll make them all sorry for the day they took on Charlie Murray. And after finishing a flagon of ale, Murray bid his friend goodbye, borrowed a change of clothing, armed himself with some knives and a cutlass, and walked out into the mist. The area then began to suffer a spate of murders and children going missing, and the authorities were pressured to take action. A troop of soldiers began searching for what was believed to be a gang of cutthroats, yet they never found any. It was in 1587 that Charles Murray was discovered living in an underground shelter near Thorpe on the Hill, on the outskirts of Lincoln by a farm worker called Shiny Thomas. The young man befriended the old pirate, would bring him food and ale for a share of the profits that Murray was making as a rustler. However, it was their relationship that would lead to the mutineer's undoing. One day Thomas brought his girlfriend Ruth to visit Murray. And he became angry because Thomas had forgotten his ale. The young farm lad told Ruth to wait there while he ran home to collect the drink for his rather too aggressive partner. On his way back he heard screams coming from Murray's underground home, dropped the ale and raced to see what was happening. He burst into Murray's shelter to find the blood-soaked body of Ruth lying on the straw-covered floor. Murray was stamping on her head and neck over and over again until the bone was smashed into a bloody mess. 
Thomas tried to scream, but no sound would come out. Murray reached down and grabbed the tragic woman's hair, all matted with gore and brain matter. Keeping his foot wedged on her neck, he heaved and part of her head pulled away. A bit of her cheek was visible, an eye hanging down on a sinewy thread as Murray held it up, shouting, "'She's not so pretty now, is she?' Thomas began backing out of the shelter as Murray walked towards him, waving his horrid trophy at the terrified farm worker. Fearing for his own life, the lad ran home and alerted the local magistrate that his girl had been murdered. Without delay, 25 soldiers were sent out from Lincoln to apprehend this madman, but on reaching Murray's home, all they found was the girl's body, it had been stamped almost completely flat. They searched for almost two days, but there were no sign of the pirate. And when the authorities learned that it was Charles Murray who was the missing mutineer, almost 200 troops were instructed to join the hunt. They were hot on his trail when he kidnapped a young woman who was playing in a field with her two-year-old son. He hid with his hostages behind a stone wall until night fell and the troops had passed by. The sun slowly rose and Murray felt the woman trying to struggle away. So he picked up a stone, pulled his hand back and swung it hard into the nape of her neck. He'd only wanted a stunner, but she fell lifeless into a ditch, blood oozing like warm treacle from her shattered skull. The child began to cry, screaming his panic into the still morning air and two soldiers heard that cry, set off to investigate and soon saw the crouched shape of Charles Murray. They drew their swords and walked towards him and as he began climbing up a tree, clutching the tiny child to his chest, he'd got up as far as he could and shouted down to the soldiers, now about fifteen in number, threatening to throw the child to his death if they came anywhere near him. They stood their ground until their commanding officer, a down-to-earth Londoner called Captain Joyce, appeared. He ordered his men to spread out in readiness to catch the boy if he should cast it from the tree. Then he ordered two of his biggest and most aggressive soldiers to climb up after him. They were barely six feet up when Murray pulled out a carved dagger and held it to the child's throat. Joyce pulled his men back at once and Murray roared with laughter. You'll not catch Charlie Murray, the king of the pirates. If Francis Drake can't kill me, then you'll not stand a chance. He stood up nearly level with the top of the tree and began shouting down his orders, telling the soldiers to walk until they were out of sight. Then he would come down and disappear into the fields and be away. At that moment there was a tremendous flapping of wings and a huge bird flew straight into Murray's face, causing him to drop the child. A soldier dived to catch the tiny child at the expense of a fractured wrist. Murray was off balance but managed to right himself and turned to see what creature had attacked him. And there, in the distance, swooping to make another attack was a gigantic golden eagle. It began its descent, its talons shining in the sunlight as it flew towards Murray at such speed that the bird became a blur. The eagle hit Murray in the throat, tearing into his neck, twisting and tearing out his windpipe. The mighty wings seemed to cartwheel as it spun back into flight again. Murray screamed with all of his might, blood pumping into his tattered windpipe, his mind swimming in pain and confusion, and he began to fall. 
and crashed through the branches and leaves until he thudded under the grass. His back broken, he lay there looking up at the soldiers, unable to talk, unable to move as the blood soaked into the ground. He stared and stared until his stare was trapped in eyes that could no longer see. The eagle circled overhead and seemed to be crying in celebration of his destruction of this vile excuse for a human being. The child survived to become a farmer in his own right near Newton-on-Trent, and the site of this episode is now known as Eagle, though eagles, let alone golden ones, are few and far between. In September 1969, Mrs Kathleen Dutton of Grantham was driving towards Lincoln to meet a friend when she was forced to do an emergency stop when a huge bird flew straight at her car. She shut her eyes tight as she felt a crash as though the bird had gone straight through her mini. When she was able to look around, saw that the windscreen wipers had both been ripped off and there were feathers inside the car. The feathers were brown and were later identified by a local museum as an eagle. To this day, she has no idea how they got into the car. The ghost of Charles Murray has been sighted on more than 30 occasions. The American ghost hunter Paul Jones writes, There is no doubt that Murray's spirit still walks the land south of Lincoln, England, usually carrying part of a woman's head with an eyeball hanging out in front of him. Sightings have been made as far afield as the banks of the river Witham. The most recent report, Mr and Mrs Marshall from Arnold in Nottingham. They were driving around the Lincolnshire lanes in search of a nice place to have a salmon sandwich picnic. That was in August 92. They'd been to Lincoln. They turned off past South Clifton, passing North Scarl and heading towards Eagle, when they saw a man crouched over something at the side of the road. John Marshall pulled his Astra over and shouted from his window, asking if the man was all right. He appeared to be stamping on something white, and as he turned, he screamed at the car. At this, the marshals just drove off. Mrs Marshall watched through the back window as the bald man kept stamping, and later said on a local radio station, I was sure he was stamping on someone. Then eventually they turned the car and drove back at speed, but there was no one and nothing there. And that is our grisly tale. Hope you've enjoyed an odd mixture this time. Try and go to Robson's World if you can. There's plenty there for you and more coming all the time. And we'll be back soon with another of Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales.